Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. All right, well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 1. What a great morning so far. I love uh, this time of the year when we get to see people come back. It's see family and friends and people who have been away and and uh, what a great time and great music so far. Jordan's been holding out on us here on that saxophone, hasn't he? <laughs> oh, what a great morning. Well, I would invite you, like I said, to turn to John chapter 1. We're going to continue our Advent series here, looking at the coming of Christ. And uh, I just want to open our time here in a word of prayer. So would you uh, just bow your head with me? Thank you, God, for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you for the privilege we have of of just celebrating the advent of Christ, his love, his joy, his peace, all that has come, the hope that is in Christ, being able to sing these great songs in community and in love for each other and in love for you and uh, to be ministered to by not only the worship team and the Webster family, but just uh, by your word. God, what a great morning. I pray, Lord, that this morning would just enrich us as we consider what it means that you came into the world. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are, of course, at our last Sunday before Christmas, our last study here in our Advent series where we have been trying to look at the scriptures to see how they describe for us the coming of Jesus into the world. So we looked at the advent in the, in the, in the law. We saw that. We looked at the advent in the Psalms. We looked at the advent uh, in the prophets. And now today we'll look at the advent, the coming of Christ in the, uh, in, the, in the Gospels here and what we see here in John. And the goal of this study is to kind of enlighten us to see a little bit more of the Christmas story, to recognize that it isn't just a, a sentimental story, but it is actually uh, a promise a promise. In fact, we've seen three of the promises already, that one would come that would crush the head of the serpent. That's one of the promises that we were looking at, that one was going to come and he was going to crush the head of Satan, that, that evil itself would be dealt with. One of the promises that we looked at is that, that when the Messiah comes, that he would deliver us from the rejection of God, that God would not turn his back on us because he's turned his back on the, one, on, on the Messiah himself in our place. So we would never have to face the rejection of God. We looked at the fact that, that one was going to come who was going to bring the arm of the, the Lord to deal with the root problem in the world in that sin. And so we, we examine that and what that means. And today, we're going to be expanding on this to, to, to see something richer and deeper because, you see, Advent should be a time. This time of the year should be a time in which we become stronger, where we are reminded of, of the monumental reality of what it means that Jesus has come into the world. And in fact, I like to think of it this way. I really do believe that, 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 that the Christmas story shouldn't be reduced to like a Christmas spirit, like a, you know, just a good sentimental feeling, but the Christmas story is actually the narrative that answers the questions that our world is asking. I want you to think about this. In our world today, uh, our young people are exposed to a, a boatload of competing worldviews. There's a whole bunch of them out there, 
And if you're raised in this world, as, as, as our kids are coming up in this world, they're being bombarded with a bunch of competing worldviews. And these competing worldviews create confusion for people. Now, the competing worldviews that, that, that I see today that, 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 that young people are being raised in, our society holds to, are, are four of them. And here they are. The first one is atheism. There's a lot of people out there saying God doesn't exist. Right? You've got popular atheists writing popular books just saying God does not exist. Then there's another worldview that's out there that's, that exists at the same time that the atheism does, and it's agnosticism, right? God exists, but you can't know. You'll never know who God is. Then there's a third worldview that's out there, relativism. There's no absolute truth. There's no way to know what absolute truth is, so only do what's good for you. You discover your own truth. And then there's a fourth worldview that's out there, naturalism. Naturalism says, that, well, there are no answers really other than what science and technology and politics can develop. And so if you can't find what's good for you, don't worry, the scientists will. And they'll help you get through it. The, the economists will. The politicians will. So put your hope there. Now, as we engage these world, as we live in this world and engage this world, we are exposed to these worldviews at the same time. All four of them are presented in this world today. How are they presented? Here's how all four of these worldviews are presented. They will tell you today, well, God doesn't exist. But even if he does, you'll never really know him. No one really will know what the truth is. So just do what's best for you. Do what works for you. But you know what? If you can't find your way, don't worry. There's scientific technology that will help you find your way because it's the age of the geek anyways, and, and they're going to help us. They're our prophets. They'll help us find our way. Now, in that one paragraph are all four worldviews, right? God doesn't exist, atheism, but even if he does exist, you'll never know him, agnosticism. So just do what works for you, relativism, and don't worry if you can't find your way. It's the age of the geek, baby, so don't worry. They'll help you find your way, naturalism. Now, that is a confusing world to live in, when terrorists show up and start shooting at people. That worldview can't help. So we have an event that goes on in the world, and then you turn on talk radio and you hear all these people talking, and eventually I turn it off because I'm like, ah, this is crazy talk. I can't handle this anymore. Why? Because you see, this worldview, these, these competing worldviews only create confusion. They can't give answers. They can't help people when someone dies. They can't help you navigate the, the real trials of this world when you can't get a job. They can't help you navigate what to do when you've been betrayed or hurt by people. They, they can't help you. Those competing worldviews can't help. Enter the Christmas story. The Christmas story absolutely goes against this and says, hey, wait a minute. There is a different way. There is an understanding. There is a God. He did enter this world. He did show you a way, and the answers are in him. And if you need help, if you need direction, if you need, if you need guidance, if you, if you need your fears calm, if this world is confusing and the, and the competing, you know, contradictory worldviews aren't doing it for you, Jesus has come. Jesus has come. That's what we're going to see here as we study the Gospel of John today. We're going to look at how the entrance of Jesus brought in something, a resolution to all the confusion of the world. 
As the world's trying to figure out, is there a God? Do we get to know him? Is the answer in me? Is the answer in the world? Where is it? And, and they're all kind of groping around. The writer, John, tells us, guess what? The incarnation happened. God entered this world. And when he entered this world, he solved all of the problems that you got going inside of you. He will give you an anchor, a way to view this. See, it's not just a Christmas spirit. It's a Christmas message. It's a Christmas message. I want us to see this today. I wrote down four things that I would hope that you would get from this. Four things. Number one, I really want you just to be encouraged. I just want this to be exciting. We're going to study John here today, and I just hope you're just like, man, this was just great to study the gospel of John. I just hope that, that it just lifts your spirit. Second, I hope that it would influence your worship. Influence your worship. You know, worship is about ascribing glory to God. Worship isn't about something you experience. It's about what, what we say to God about God. Right? That's what worship is. And the more we learn about Christ, the better our worship is. And so I hope this informs your worship. Third, though, third thing is that I, I really hope and pray that this would help you engage. You know, uh, I have a feeling that around the, 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 the dinner table there's going to be lots of lively conversations about the events of the world. Right? When you've got the world kind of blowing up around us and, a, and an election coming up, there's a lot of lively talk. And I hope that this encourages you and, and, and helps you be able to have uh, a Christmas message to bring to the table. And fourthly, I've been really burdened that, that we would also recognize how we need to invest into the next generation of the children and that they would understand this about Christ and that we wouldn't raise up moral kids alone, but that we'd raise up Christian kids, kids that know and are grounded in Christ and what he's done. And so, so lofty goals, four big goals here for today, but, but let's aim high, see if we can get all, cover all four of them here. But let's begin. I want, let's begin by just looking at the first point here, the person of the incarnation. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a profound statement. Now, the Gospel of John is written about Jesus, but yet in the very first section, the very first words he writes, he doesn't use the name Jesus. He keeps using the Word, the Word. And he, and he references Jesus as the Word. And we're going to talk about in just a second, second what that means and why he's referencing Jesus this way. But notice what he says, that the Word became flesh. This thing, whatever the Word is, why, you know, and, and we'll understand it in a second here, this Word all of a sudden took on human flesh. Something that is infinite, eternal, invisible, supernatural, entered into a finite, temporal, visible, natural world. It's amazing what he's saying. The eternal entered in. Entered into the finite. It's amazing to think about. Something that we couldn't see suddenly becomes something we can see. Amazing thought. Now, what's he saying? Why is he saying it this way? And why does he reference Jesus as the Word? Well, John is writing, and he wants everybody to understand his point. And he wants us to understand that when, when he sees Jesus, he doesn't just see Jesus as some guy who kind of was really the spiritual guy, and he reached some kind of spiritual plateau where he became divine. He sees Jesus as God himself. 
Now, if you're going to write a gospel, you're going to write a book, and you're going to try to explain that you believe that Jesus is the God-man, that's a pretty lofty thought. How would you do it? Well, you would want to take the ideas of the age. The idea of the word word, okay, the word word. Now, the word word in the Greek is logos, and I'm going to use that word logos so that I don't keep saying the word word, okay, because that just gets hard to say. So the word logos, logos in, 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 in that day and age was a rich word. It meant something to the Jewish population, meant something to the Gentile population. To the Jews, they understood the idea of the logos as being the very word and power of God. You know, when God spoke, things came into being. Genesis 1, it says, he's, Moses said, in the beginning, or uh, uh, God created uh, God said, let there be light. There we go. There's the verse. It's coming. <laughs> let there be light. And, and, the, and the text says, let there be light. And in the Hebrew, it just says light right afterwards. Let there be light, light. Our English, we put, and there was light. But the actual text just says, let there be light, light. And the reason why it's written that way is that the moment he said light, light existed. And to the, to the Jewish population, they understood that the word of God was the very power of God. When he speaks, it happens, right? If, if he says dog, a dog exists, right? No big like, you know, movie moment, you know, smoke and loud music and explosions. He goes dog, dog, fish, fish. When he speaks, it happens. So they understood that the logos was the creative power of God. That part of God in which when, when he says something, it happens. The power of God. To the Greek, to the Gentiles, to, in Greek philosophy, they had an idea of the logos as well. They saw the, the, the Greek philosophy saw that there was a, a, a central group of ideas that held all the ideas together. There was like one major idea, I should say, that encompassed all the other ideas. And so the Greek philosophers would be sitting around, they'd be thinking about all the great ideas about life and man and, and, and creation, and they would say, but we believe that there is one central idea that encompasses all the other ideas. Now, if you're like really excited about that statement, you're a spatial learner. If you're going, what does that mean? You're not, right? And you'd be bored in a philosophy class, right? Because you'd be like, what? Who cares? about this central idea. But they, they thought about this. They thought about this for years, all the way going back to the 6th century B.C. when Heraclitus sat down and said, there is a central divine logos. And this is the idea that holds all the ideas together, and the goal of philosophy is to find that idea. Okay, so you've got one word that means something to both Jews and and Gentiles, the Logos. And so John is saying, okay, I'm going to write. And I want to I somehow say God became man. But I don't want to just say God became man. I want to really capture the essence of what happened. The Logos. The very power of God. The very thing that holds all things together. The very truth that embodies every truth. The very source of every power, every creative power. The very essence of the very arm of the Lord has come to earth. The Word was made flesh. That's how John thinks about Christmas, so to speak. If John were to come back from the dead, he probably wouldn't be thinking of Christmas trees and things like that. And he'd be thinking, man, the, the, the whole 
idea of the power, the essence, the logic, the rule, the, the majesty of the divine took on human flesh. That's what he's saying. The word, the logos, became flesh. Now, why in the world would the logos need to become flesh? Well, I think we could answer that question, right? If you think about it, we are bound to this natural world. We're bound to this natural body. And yet, in this natural world and in our natural body, we can't find the answers. We can't find the answers to human relationships. We can't find the answers to, to, to even how to conduct some kind of business and commerce. We can't find the answer to how to get along. We can't find the answers of how to solve the problems that are before us. We are just stuck in this natural world. And for years, people tried to like break out of that, that, that box. They recognized we're stuck in this box, this box of the world. And, and, and people believe, well, out there is a supernatural answer. And maybe the answer is for us to pray harder and, and do more good stuff and, and, and pray these prayers in a certain direction certain times a day or, or give sacrifices or walk around on our knees till our knees are bloody or do some kind of ritual. And maybe what we could do is break out of that box into the supernatural realm, and then we would find the answer. And so for years, people tried this, and eventually in the 1700s, people went, wait a minute, why are we trying to break out of the box? Maybe the answer's in the box. And so we started digging around, getting microscopes, looking at dirt, looking at things, trying to say, maybe the answer's inside the box. We couldn't break out of the box, and there's no answer inside the box. What's the solution? John says, well, listen, the supernatural entered your box. That's the point. He came in. He came in to deliver you, to get you out, to give you the solutions, to give you the worldview, to, to, to show you how you don't have to be confined by this box and how one day you'll be set free from it. That's Christmas. That's how John is thinking about Christmas. The Word became flesh. And notice what he says, after the word becomes flesh, he then said, and it dwelt among us. Isn't that powerful? Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. Literally, it says this, pitched a tent, built a tabernacle. So not only did, did, did God enter our box, he hung out here. He lived our life. He was a child. He was a baby. He was a child. He was a young adult. He had to deal with parents. Could you picture literally being a perfect child with imperfect parents? Picture that. It's not hard for some of you, right? No, I'm joking. <laughs> it's pretty close. Represents my home growing up. No. Could you picture that? But he, Jesus, had a way different life than we ever had. He never sinned, and yet he had to honor parents who did. He pitched a tent. He lived in the world. He dealt with struggles you and I never dealt with. You think you know someone's motives. Could you imagine talking to somebody and knowing their motives? <laughs> imagine Jesus like, you know, 25 years old, some guy sitting there lying to him. And he's going, I'm God. I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> like, I know your motives. You're cheating me right now, right? And yet respond in grace. He pitched a tent and lived in our world, is what he's saying. The eternal took up residency. This is what he did. He dwelt among us. And you know what he says then? Notice what he says next. 
And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. That's a powerful statement. Moses in Exodus said, God, show me your glory. And God said, there's no way you could see my glory and live. The glory of God is the sum total of all the attributes of God. It's the glory is just a summary word, actually. It's the summary word when you're trying to say, how do we give up, how do we take everything that God is, and what do we say, what's the word we use when we're trying to think of every attribute? So if we had like a whiteboard up here and we said, okay, let's list all the attributes of God, right? It'd be this huge whiteboard we'd need, and we'd be listing out all these things, and then we'd say, okay, what's the one word that summarizes all that? It's glory. And this is why God says, you can't see me, because asking to see my glory is seeing who I am. And if you see who I am, I am so holy and you're so not, it would crush you. And yet, he says, this infinite became finite, pitched a tent, and we got to see his glory. We got to see his glory. Now, how, do, how did we see his glory? Why didn't we die? Well, he explains it. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's two statements there. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. That's just another way of saying that, that, that everywhere he went, he represented the nature of the Father. There's two ways you can talk about sonship. One is somebody just being born, like that's my son. There's another element of sonship that says this person reflects you. You can see, some, you can see somebody and say, oh, I totally see your mom in you or your dad in you. Or, boy, when I see you, it reminds me of your grandfather. Or, you know, sometimes I see things that go on in my own kids, and I say, oh, that's exactly how I would have responded. I'm sorry, guys. You got that one from me, Right? Like, like you could see that. It's nature. And he's saying, all of a sudden, how God would respond, we get to see now. But we're not just seeing it in, 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 a, in, a, in a distant way through the law. We're actually watching God deal with parents. We're watching God deal with friends. We're watching God deal with enemies. We're watching God deal with work. We're watching God deal with paying his taxes. We're watching God deal with all this, right? You just read the story of Jesus. You're seeing how Jesus responded to everything from politics to war to, to sin to adultery to life to pain to problems. And you know what we get to see? This is exactly how God would respond. We're beginning to see this stuff come out because we're seeing his, his, his attributes emerge. And then he says, not only glory is the only son from the Father, but then he says, full of grace and truth. He possessed two things, grace and truth. Full of it. Overabundance of it is the idea. Grace and truth. What does he mean? Well, the grace of God is, is the generosity of God, right? God giving when you don't deserve to be given to, he gives. That's grace. Truth is direction giving direction. He's showing you now this is how you're to live in the world, right? God does exist, and he answered your world. Not only does he exist, you can know him, and not only that, we don't have to be relative anymore and say what works for you. We got God himself saying, this is the direction I want you to go. This is the direction, and he's full of grace, which means he's helping us get there. It's a powerful statement. Now, he wants to make sure John, the writer, wants to make sure that we understand his point. That God has just entered the world. And in order to make this point, he, he, he writes verse 15. Verse 15, 
is the statement that is just meant to underscore the fact that he's talking about God becoming flesh. So notice this statement. It could seem confusing. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now you read that and you go, That is not my life verse. I would never make that my life verse. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> what does that verse mean? Why is it there? Well, let me kind of give you a little backdrop, explain it, and then we'll read it again, and I think it'll make sense to you. In that culture and that day, both for Jews and Gentiles, they were opposite of our culture. Our culture values youth, right? If something is new, if something is younger, it must be better. That's our culture, right? And so if we, in, in just the way our culture is, if I were to walk in and say, well, hey, you know, hey, I'm just this... 48-year-old guy just doing my thing, and then some other guy walks in, well, I'm 38. Well, we want the 38-year-old. <laughs> He's clearly better. He's more in touch with what's hip and what's cool and what's, what's new, and, uh, you know, he's probably got a better phone, and he probably knows how to use his computer, and, you know, like, he's, this guy is clearly better, okay? Just look at the way he's dressed. He's clear, like, that's our culture. That culture, exact opposite. If you were older, you were better. If you're older, you're better. If I entered ministry 10 years before you, I would always be better than you because I'm always 10 years older than you. And if somebody had a choice to listen to me or you, they'll listen to me because I am 10 years older than you. That's how the culture was. If you're looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Jesus, he came into ministry first. He's older Started his ministry before Jesus, and he's six months older than Jesus. He's older. He's got a little bit more ministry experience and a little bit more age on him. But John says, hey, listen, I know I started in ministry before him, and I know that I came to talk about one who's coming after me, and I know that your instincts are going to treat that one who's coming after me as lesser than me because he's coming after me. But there's one thing you should know about him. He existed way before I ever existed. I was born before him on this earth, but he existed before me. He's eternal. Listen to him. See, this is his point. He's the eternal one. We'll go back, read it again. Verse 15, John bore witness. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, right? He's coming after me, I know that. But he ranks before me. He ranks better than me. Why? Because he was before me. You see, I was born before him, but he's God. And so he's better. John's writing this to say, do you understand what I am telling you? God has entered this planet and he is showing you how to live. He is showing you the way. He is giving you everything. That's what the incarnation is. That's the person of the incarnation. Now, let's look at the purpose of the incarnation. Okay, let's go a little bit deeper into this. Why did the incarnation happen? Two things we're going to see here. The word became flesh, so two things would happen. The first thing is that, that we would experience grace and the second thing is that we would see God. Now, we're going to look at this. Let's look at the first one, that man experienced grace. Look at verse 16. This is a really powerful verse. 
He says, for from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. That particular verse is an incredibly powerful verse. And at one level, it's hard to translate. Let me tell you what, how the verse is actually literally translated, okay? And you'll see why, it's, why it would be hard to translate. It actually is translated this way. For out of his fullness, we have received grace instead of grace, is the actual translation. Grace instead of grace. Now, you can see why the English translators are not going to put the word instead of grace, right? Would you like a chocolate chip cookie instead of a chocolate chip cookie? How about an Oreo instead of an Oreo? Right? You'd be like, what does that mean? How do you have grace instead of grace? But that's actually what it's saying. In fact, you could expand it a little bit further. It's actually saying this. When the fullness came in, okay? So I'll give you kind of a a Leston translation. When, When the fullness of God arrived in human flesh, all that God is suddenly took up residency on earth. He brought with him a grace that wiped out the grace that was already on the planet. He came with a whole new truckload of grace. That's what he said. Now, what does that mean? Well, the good news is John explains it to us. Verse 17, we have the explanation. You know it's an explanation because you got the word for there. For, even though everything that's been going on has been an explanation of these things, and now we're going to understand what the grace is he's saying. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. There was grace on the planet before the incarnation. It it came. What was that grace? It was on the planet. The law. You say, wait a minute. The law isn't grace. The law is law. It's true. The law is not the grace that saves. But in the law is grace. Why? Man sinned, but God still revealed his heart, still revealed his purposes, still revealed what he wanted from you, still revealed himself. He revealed his nature. He revealed everything. He revealed how he feels about everything. He, he reveals what you do with your garbage. I mean, he's telling you how he feels about every single thing on the planet. There isn't one element of life on earth that he doesn't tell you what he thinks about it and what should be done with it. That is what makes the law at times so complex to read. Wow, there are a lot of words on garbage. What to do with it. How to throw it away. Where to put it in the camp. This is tough stuff, right? God's revealing it. But not only that, once he reveals all that, you go, oh my, I could never remember all of this. I could never do all of this. I can't even do this, right? I mean, when I was a kid, if my mom said, go clean your room, I'd be walking to my room, and then I'd get in my room going, why am I here? Like, I can't even remember something that said to me three minutes ago, let alone everything that it says in the law. Oh, and God says, by the way, you break one little jot or tittle of this law, and you go to hell. It's pretty intense. But yet God said, you know what? I know there is no way that you can do this. I know you can't even figure out what you're doing when you walk into a room. So I've created a sacrificial system so that when you do transgress this law, I will allow an animal to die in your place to cover that sin. What's the problem in the sacrificial system? It's kind of like just paying the minimum payment on your credit card. 
right? If you've got $17,000 in your credit card and you pay the $30 a month minimum or whatever it is, you're going to pay it off? No. You're not even going to get close. All you're going to do is make the bank really happy because they're just going to get 50 bucks a month from you until your grandchildren die, right? And that debt is paid off. Well, it never gets paid off, right? <laughs> so that's what's going on. It's just satisfying. Satisfying the one you're in debt to temporarily. It's a temporal satisfaction. But there's grace in that. Why? Because God is saying, listen, I've made a way, I've created a minimum payment system so that I don't crush you. I don't send a flood down and, and flood the earth. I've created a way. And so that's grace, isn't it? There's, there's a lot of grace in that. But that grace only allows me to maintain, never overcome. That grace doesn't give me direction. That grace doesn't, doesn't help me solve my problem. That grace doesn't allow me to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That grace doesn't allow me to become free from my sin. That grace doesn't give me a new heart. It doesn't align me with God's spirit. In fact, it keeps a veil between me and God. I have to keep coming to him with my eyes closed and, and an offering, praying that I've repented enough and that he'll accept this dove or this lamb in my place. And then he's saying this, but when the fullness of God came, he brought a grace that wiped out that grace. That's why he says grace against grace. It's the word anti, anti-grace. He brought a grace that wiped out the former grace that absolutely changed everything. That statement in verse 16 is the most powerful statement to me in the early chapters of John. A whole new age has come in is what he's saying. A whole new age. Because what we had before that was the law, but now what do we have? Grace and truth that came through Jesus. What is the grace that came through Jesus? Jesus knew that he would take the consequences of that sin. Pay for it in full. God would raise him from the dead, showing he accepted that as a payment. And then share that righteousness with us. Take our sin, give us his righteousness. The first Christmas gift exchange. I'll take your sin, I'll give you my righteousness. Now what happens? Credit card debt paid off. Paid off. No more debt. And you know what? It would be silly to start writing the checks to the, to the bank even after it's paid off, right? No one does that. It's paid in full, man. We ain't going back there. This grace is gone. This is why it's grace against grace. This grace is going away. And a whole new grace is coming in. A whole new grace. A replacement grace that is doing away with that old grace. Why? Because this grace also not only will make a way for you to be made new, it will bring you into a union with God, and, and that union then gives you truth. You get to know God. You get to know his way. You get to know what he wants of you. You get direction. I remember talking to an agnostic guy one time, and I was telling him, I think Jesus is the way, and he said to me, I think that's hubris, I think that's arrogant of you, that you would say Jesus is the only way, and that he's, you know, on and on. He was just kind of, you know, saying it's so arrogant to say that about Jesus. And I would stop and say, listen, I'm making a claim. I'm making a claim about Jesus. 
Why don't you go ahead and study and look at the life of Jesus? Just read it. Read the Gospels. Read John. Look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus said. And tell me if it is not true or not. And if you're going to do it, let me know, because I want to just be praying, God, open your eyes to see Jesus. Because it's true. He's giving you direction. Right? We're not just, this isn't like an arrogant moment, like our religion's cooler than your religion. You know, this isn't that kind of thing. We're not spiking the football going, Jesus is so cool, man. He's so much cooler than you guys and those other religions. What we're saying is we're all groping around trying to find the answer. The answer is not going to be strapping a bomb onto myself and blowing myself up in a mall. God isn't happy with that. That's not an answer. That's destruction. But Jesus has come along and said, I'm going to give you truth. I'm going to show you the way. I'm going to give you the words you need so that you'll know how to handle your life from the smallest level in your home to the biggest level in global politics. I'm going to take you from everything from life to marriage to child raising to work to business to kings and nations. I'll give you truth. This grace that has come in has brought a truth with it that suddenly gives us direction, frees us from naturalism, frees us from dead works, frees us from groping around. But not only that, we get to see God, right? Not only do we experience grace, we get to see God. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. Right? God is a spirit. God, you can't see God. God hides himself so that people won't die So he's saying no one's ever seen him. But then he says, the only God who's at the side of the Father, he's speaking in terms, he's saying, listen, there is this one who had intimate union with God the Father, and he's God the Son. He has now come to earth. And let me tell you how it's literally written. We have in the ESV, he's made him known. Here's how you would literally translate that. He has interpreted him for us. He's explained him to us. He's literally taught us who God is. You know, when we talk about what's the difference between you know, Christianity and other monotheistic religions, don't we all worship the same God as all these other people out there? And I, and I like to say, no, we don't. Because here's what Christianity teaches. That Jesus is the one who has explained God. Jesus is the one who has revealed God. And if you reject that in Jesus, we aren't even close in terms of our understanding of God. We're not even on the same page. John is saying, Jesus came and taught us who the Father was. Jesus came and taught us the heart of God, the will of God, the purposes of God. He has given us the mind of God. If you reject that in Jesus, you reject God. That's the message of the Gospel of John. John says that over and over, man. This is the one who is telling you what it is. Who it is. This is it. I remember doing a counseling situation one time. A couple was having a struggle, and in the course of the struggle, it was discovered that one, uh, one party shared something that they wanted. They said, this is what I want. This is what, you know, in this particular context, this is, this is what I need from you, and laid it all out. And the other spouse did the exact opposite. And it, and it got, created a conflict, and they were trying to sort through that conflict. And, and as they're sorting it through, I just said, well, was there a problem with what they said when they said they needed this and this and this? Oh, no. 
And like, was there some sin reason why you wouldn't want to do that for them? Oh, no. So they're telling you exactly what they want. And you're just not going to do it. Well, I was thinking, and I said, stop. There is your problem, okay? (laughs) You shouldn't have been thinking about this. They've told you what they wanted. Do it, right? As long as they're not telling you to go rob a bank, do it, right? Jesus is telling us who God is. And if we back away from that and we go, well, actually, I was thinking that's really not who God is. Actually, God is this over here and God is that over there. And Jesus, well, whatever. He's a good guy. He's a good prophet. But he's not. No, he's it. If you reject this, you reject God. This is the message of Christmas. And it's the message of Christianity. He is the revelation of God. But here's the good news. God can be known. He can be known. So, let me wrap this up. I think if John were here today based on what he wrote, and if he were giving the Christmas message, he would say to us, Kishwaukee Bible Church, I want to tell you something. You live in an age where atheism, agnosticism, relativism, naturalism have all combined to create this confusing worldview. And John would come and he would say, but guess what? Christmas ends atheism. God does exist. He does exist. God has directly come to earth. And then John would say, Christmas ends agnosticism because Jesus revealed God to us. We don't have to be confused about what he thinks about anything. We have a lot of words in our Bible about what Jesus said about the Father. Every reaction he had the Father's reaction. Everything he did is the Father's reaction. Everything he has taught us who God is. God is knowable in the person of Jesus Christ. Christmas ends relativism. Jesus has come to the world. He has brought this eternal grace, this eternal truth. We don't have to find it anymore. We don't have to grope around for it. He is coming to provide a way. And Christmas ends naturalism as he tells us where to look for help. The answer has come, and I don't have to search with my microscope or my telescope to try to find it. It's in Jesus. God came into our box in the person of Jesus, and he brought us grace, and he brought us truth. So let me give you three applications to think about this week. Three things. I want to give you three applications around three different words. But the three applications are this. The first word that came to my mind was the word engage. And and here's the application. You have in Christ and in this Christmas message the answer to the question of the ages. This confusing worldview we live in, Christ has resolved it. You have the answer. Now, the issue really today isn't whether or not you have, uh, you know, whether or not you need to learn more. You probably do. You probably need to study more. But the reality is we just need the courage to proclaim it. Oftentimes our, our problem isn't that we don't know what to say. Oftentimes our problem is we're like totally scared to say it, right? A bunch of people are talking and then you're like, this is a good moment for a Jesus comment, but I don't want to give it. I don't want to give it. I'm afraid. It's, it's amazing how that happens. But one of the things that can help you I have a friend who does this. He calls it his red-letter study. Um, Red-letter studies, he goes through, and he tries to every year just read every word of Jesus. Just 
calls it the red letter because in some Bibles, you know, Jesus' words are in red. And he just studies the words of Jesus. He just, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? And he writes them down. He just reflects on them. And, and he uses it to kind of shape the way he thinks about life and the world. That can help you engage. But the second thing, the second word that came to my mind was worship. We want to offer praise to God. Praise is ultimately what we say about Jesus. And in Jesus, God has been fully revealed, which means we get to say incredible things. And so much of our worship shouldn't be about the experience we have. It should be about the words we say about God. And worship isn't just what happens here on a Sunday morning. Worship happens as you're going through your week and you're thinking about God and you're giving praise to God and you're stopping and you're thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done. And if you're really reflecting on the life of Christ, there's incredible words you can say back and that becomes worship. Third thing, I was thinking about just reproduction. I was thinking about the fact that God has put us on this earth not just to reproduce in terms of kids, but also to ensure that, that we're raising the next generation, raising the next generation to be Christ-centered. And that when you're dealing, let's say if you have children, if you, if you have children in your home, are you just disciplining them morally? That was wrong, stop it, and if you do it again, I'm going to do this, but if you don't do it, or are we bringing them to Christ? Somebody comes and says, I want to go to this movie, and you say, no, why, no, why, no, why? You keep asking me why, and it's going to get worse for you. Well, I don't get it, right? And you know how that cycle can go, right? You can get, get stuck in that loop. But why not a Christ-centered answer? You know, we're Christians. And this doesn't glorify Christ. And, 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 and our job is to expose that as being evil. Our job isn't to enjoy it. Because we have the light of the world in us. Christ has come so that we would reveal this stuff as being deeds of darkness, not deeds of joy. Right? Bringing these things to Christ. And not just if you don't have children, that's great, because here's the reality. It isn't just about parenting. It's about the next generation. Maybe you're discipling somebody. Maybe you just got somebody in your life. Maybe you should have somebody in your life you're discipling. We can be passing this on, but what we're trying to pass on is Christ because he's revealed grace and truth and the Father to us. That's what Christmas is about. So, this is the great news of Christmas. Jesus has come into the world has brought a deeper grace than we could ever imagine. He's revealed to us the way. He's revealed us to the truth. He's shown us the Father. It's amazing. Why don't we offer praise to him right now? Would you bow your head with me? Jesus, we offer praise to you because you are worthy of praise. You have come into this world and you have shown us the way. You've entered our box. The infinite came into the finite world. The eternal came into the temporal world. You've stepped in, and in the fullness of what you've stepped in, you've replaced the religious system that only maintained a walk with the Father. You've replaced it with something that restored our walk. You've shown us the way. You've given us paths of truth. God, in our lives, sometimes we 
are guilty of living as if those truths aren't true. We can get caught up in the moments of the world. We can get caught up in the moments of our life. We can get caught up in petty things. We can get caught up in, in, in small things. And we can allow worry to consume us. We can allow fear to overtake us. We can act as if you didn't come in the world at all. God, we sin in that way. But God, I thank you for the grace that not only forgives that sin, but can remind us and restore us of the right way. Lord, let these words just sink into us, build us up, encourage us this morning. Let them equip us to be bold in how we live. God, let, let it cause worship to come from our mouths. Let us pass this on to the next generation that we might hand the baton of Christ to the generation behind us. But Lord, let us live as if these words are true so that we might walk boldly in a world that is struggling right now. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.